You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. I hope you are all well. It is time for a new series, this one about the Burke and Wills expedition, and I am very excited about it for several reasons. First of all, this will get us to Australia. We have not done any stories about the exploration of the land down under, and the Burke and Wills expedition is one of the continent's greatest tales. Second, this is an awesome story. If you love a classic explorer sets out into the unknown drama, well, this is right up your alley. It's a story with everything. It has triumphs and tragedies and foolishness and a myriad of other things. It is simply fantastic. And third, I think you're going to love this story because it's not something we know a lot about. I mean, let's be honest. When you hear the names Christopher Columbus or Ferdinand Magellan, we know what happens to those people even before we listen to a podcast or read a book about their exploits. But the Burke and Wills expedition is uniquely Australian, which means that for many of us, and that included myself before I started researching the subject matter, our knowledge of it is limited or even non-existent. So with that in mind, many of you are probably asking, what is the Burke and Wills expedition? Well, my college-age son actually summed it up really, really well when I told him I was going to cover the topic. He said to me, quote, it's like Lewis and Clark, with stupidity, end quote. And I can't argue with that assessment. It just kept coming back to me as I was writing this intro, so I figured I would use it because it is so brutally on target, if a bit exaggerated. The Burke and Wills Expedition, actually called the Victorian Exploring Expedition, or VEE, took place in 1860 and 1861. It was an attempt to cross the Australian continent for the first time. It is a tale that would capture the attention of the world. It is also a story that offers quite a few comparisons to the famous Lewis and Clark Expedition, which crossed North America at the beginning of the 1800s. And since we covered the Lewis and Clark Expedition just a year ago on this show, I'll probably bring them up on occasion. So, today we are going to do some background about the Burke and Wills Expedition. We'll take in a little Australian history, review the domestic situation that led to the undertaking of the expedition, and introduce the most important person in this series, Robert O'Hara Burke. But before we get going, as always, there are a few notes. Note number one. Reading and now writing about Burke and Wills really made me aware of how Australian this story is, and this probably makes it very personal for the people who live there. By the way, when I say Australians, I am mostly talking about the many people of the British Empire who came to Australia, the English, the Scots, and the Irish, and so forth. Australia was a colony of England when our story takes place, but there was an emerging Australian identity, 
which we will talk about indirectly throughout this series. Also, when I say Australian, I'm including the indigenous Aboriginal peoples. Sort of. At the time of these events, the Aborigines did not see themselves as Australians. But they are a critical part of this tale, and the ramifications of the Burke and Wills expedition will greatly affect them. In the end, the story is very personal to every Australian, whether Aboriginal or European, but for reasons that are sometimes, but not always, different. Now, all of this leads me to note number two, and that is me pleading my ignorance. I am an American from the Midwest, and my knowledge of Australia is limited. So in this story, I will probably, at some point, make some Australians sit up and say, well, that's not right. So let's just say it now. I may get some things wrong. It could be facts or pronunciations or even attitudes and perceptions. But there is a chance there will be an error or two due to my cultural disconnect from the Australian continent. Just know that I will do my best, but please forgive me if I make any blunders. By the way, if you, like myself, want to learn more about Australian history, I recommend the Australian Histories podcast. They have some great stories, including a few episodes on the exploration of the region. Also, did you know there was a thing called the Great Emu War? Totally true, something you can learn about, along with lots of other cool stuff on the podcast. So if you want to know more, I highly recommend the show. You can search them out, pretty simple, Australian Histories Podcast. Or their website is australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Note number three. The story of Burke and Wills is not as simple as, say, the Lewis and Clark expedition. There are a lot of personalities and plots and places and crucial sidetracks that need to be discussed. That means that the story can be a bit confusing at times. For that reason, on our website, explorerspodcast.com, I will post a list of key people and places discussed in this series that can be referenced if necessary. I'll also put a map of all of this on the site as well. And another thing, I'm going to try and add this list of people to the podcast show notes, so that if you get confused, you can quickly reference the list right on your podcast app on your phone. We will see how well this works. So that gets us ready to go. Let's buckle up for a great story, The Burke and Wills Expedition. Today, we will start our series with a super simple history of Australia as it relates to our story. Here we go. Australia was first visited by Europeans in 1606 and would be claimed by England in 1770 when Captain James Cook mapped the eastern coastline. An English penal colony established in 1788 would be the first permanent European settlement. These early colonists were a rough and independent people who kept to the southeast and eastern shores of the continent. By the way, the indigenous Aborigines, who had been in Australia for more than 65,000 years, were pushed from the coast by the newly arrived European settlers, especially as smallpox and measles and other diseases decimated their numbers. The Aborigines were hunters and gatherers and lived throughout the continent. They are considered one of the oldest continual civilizations on Earth. At the time of the arrival of Europeans, they would have numbered between 300,000 and a million. So, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, settlers and convicts and prospectors and adventurers would arrive in Australia. They would eventually venture over the Blue Mountains, which are just west of the continent's most prominent city, Sydney. This would reveal farmlands and, more importantly, open pastures perfect for raising sheep and cattle. Wool would become one of the continent's primary exports, and good pasture for ranching was one of the things everyone was on the lookout for. Explorers would gradually push west and into the Australian interior, called the Outback or the Bush. I am not going to go through all the exploits of these explorers, but know that there are some future episodes in store for some of them. By the 1850s, about a third of the continent was mapped. Most of that was in the east and the south, as well as along the coast. Now, some quick geography for our story. Australia is about 2,500 miles wide. 
and depending on where you measure it from, it is about 1,200 to 1,900 miles from north to south. For our purposes, there are three main regions we want to discuss. The first is the colony of Victoria, which is a small area in the very bottom southeast corner of the continent. The capital city is Melbourne. The second region is South Australia, which is the colony to the west of Victoria. It dominates the south-central area of the continent. Its capital was Adelaide. The third area is the lands to the north of the two colonies. This would be the interior of the continent, stretching all the way to the northern coast. This is where much of our story will take place. So, by the 1800s, we will find Australia was a sparsely populated colony of the British Empire. But then, an exciting discovery would change everything. Gold. In 1851, gold would be discovered in Victoria, setting off the first Australian gold rush. This would transform the continent, the population growing from 430,000 to 1.7 million in just 20 years. While the majority of these newcomers were from the British Islands, there were significant numbers from Europe, America, and even China. This would bring an influx of people with many skills and backgrounds into the colony, forever changing it. The initial gold rush would prove to be astounding, as people could literally walk around and pick up gold off the ground. There were nuggets found that weighed more than 70 pounds, and at the Mount Alexander Goldfield, 2.4 million pounds of gold would be extracted in just seven months. Men would become rich overnight, and not just from finding gold. There was money to be made in every industry, such as shipping and railways and housing. No place benefited more from the gold rush than the colony of Victoria. Its population swelled to half a million people. Money was everywhere. Melbourne, which was a port of 30,000 residents, would become one of the grandest colonial cities in the British Empire within a decade, the population swelling to 120,000. Now, as Melbourne emerged as a city of wealth and political importance, its leading citizens would also take it upon themselves to transform the city into a beacon of culture and science and sophistication, modeling themselves after the great cities of Europe. This meant museums and universities and libraries and parks and scientific societies. Victoria saw itself as the crown jewel of the continent. However, the colony faced a major issue. It was, for the most part, hemmed in. The colony of New South Wales was to the northeast, and to the west was the colony of South Australia. If Victoria wanted to grow and prosper, they had only one option, to go straight north, into the interior of the continent. Now, explorers had penetrated quite a ways to the north, and the land there offered mixed opportunities, especially ranching. But who knew what else lay out there? The big problem that faced Victoria was that their neighbor, South Australia, saw these lands as their natural area of expansion. This would lead to a fierce competition between the two colonies, each trying to lay claim to the lands in the north. An explorer by the name of Charles Sturt had, in 1844, reached a place he called Cooper's Creek, about 750 miles northwest of Melbourne, as the crow flies. Cooper's Creek is actually a river. It cut through a particularly desolate region, a lifeline in an arid and sparsely populated land. Sturt had used Cooper's Creek as a base and ventured north, but he had not gotten far as the lands were inhospitable. One major obstacle was a place that Sturt called the Stony Desert, which was as impassable as the name sounds. Cooper's Creek would serve as a significant landmark, as it sat roughly halfway across the Australian continent if one wanted to go from Melbourne to the Gulf of Carpentaria on the north coast. As noted, much of the land north of Cooper's Creek was unexplored. What had been found was often arid and desolate. The weather was unpredictable, and temperatures could rise to more than 120 degrees, causing rivers and waterholes to disappear in a matter of days. And in the areas where the climate was better and water plentiful, there were the native aborigines, who could be hostile to white explorers. 
Many men, like Charles Sturt, had tried to penetrate the outback, but they were either driven back or had not returned. The lack of water was usually the biggest obstacle for any expedition. Theories of what lay in the center of the continent were a dime a dozen. Many thought that there would be a great inland lake feeding the rivers of Australia. Or they dreamed of a mighty river, like the Missouri or Mississippi, which would be a highway that would cut through the continent. Others imagined more pasture land for ranching, a way to grow the burgeoning wool trade. And others envisioned fields of gold, similar to what had been found in Victoria. The possibilities were endless. But there was one other reason the rich and powerful were interested in the lands to the north, and that was communication. The telegraph was a new development, but it was rapidly changing the world. And when the ability to lay undersea cables became a reality, it was huge. The transatlantic telegraph cable, which was completed in 1858, changed the time it took to deliver a message from Europe to North America from about 10 days to a few minutes. That is the kind of thing Australia wanted for themselves. However, undersea cables were extraordinarily expensive, so the goal would be to get a line to the Australian mainland in the shortest route possible. This meant connecting a cable to the north coast of the continent. The north coast of Australia was sparsely populated as the lands were not good. There were great swamps and rugged mountains, and the soil was bad, making it ill-suited for farming or even ranching. But all these factors did not affect a telegraph cable. But if a cable was brought ashore in the north, where would it go next? This is where the competition between the colonies of South Australia and Victoria would grow to a fever pitch. Adelaide and Melbourne envisioned the telegraph coming ashore in the north and running across the continent to their city. This would mean influence and power and money and status. Now, I want to point out that other regions wanted the telegraph to come to them, but it is the Adelaide-Melbourne competition that was smoldering at this time, and that is what we are focused on. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So with all of this in mind, that brings us to the first major character in our story. And it's not a person, but an entity. And that entity is the Royal Society of Victoria, based in Melbourne. Now, the society didn't actually get its name until 1859, when it would officially receive its charter. Up until then, it was called the Philosophical Institute of Victoria. However, for simplicity, I'm just going to call the group the Royal Society of Victoria, or the Society. So, the Royal Society of Victoria was a scientific society, not unlike those founded in other cities in Europe and the Americas. The society was comprised of the elites of the colony, academics, scientists, doctors, businessmen, and politicians, those types. They would support the things that you would imagine a scientific society would support, museums and zoos and botanical gardens and public parks. They would offer lectures, conduct research, and weigh in on matters of science that affected the world. Another area of interest would be exploration. So, in October of 1857, the society would create a new committee, whose task it was to support the exploration of the continent. 
While the makeup in the numbers of the new Exploration Committee, as it was called, would change over time, its members would generally fall into two groups. One was the scientists. For them, exploration was a slow and deliberate process. You studied the lands and the animals and the flora and the fauna, that sort of thing. The other group was the businessmen. For them, exploration was a way to open up new opportunities for the community. They wanted to know where there were pastures for ranching, or rivers for commerce, and even better, gold for mining. And for this latter group, they were definitely interested in a possible overland telegraph route. However, no matter what the interest of these people, one thing they often lacked were men with exploration experience. These were not people who had lived or traveled through the bush country. This lack of practical experience would hamper the committee's decision-making. And this takes us to August of 1858. Australia had caught the exploration bug. A man named Augustus Gregory had just completed an expedition that had gone from Brisbane on the east coast to well into the interior and then down to Adelaide. His expedition fired the imaginations of many in Victoria and South Australia who dreamed of opening up the lands to the north. The Royal Society of Victoria had been talking about doing this, but it was all pretty much talk at this point. Funding was the biggest issue. Talk about creating an exploration was great, but without money, it was just talk. Then, a Melbourne businessman, Ambrose Kite, would make things interesting when he offered the society £1,000 to fund the expedition, so long as the public would put £2,000 into the endeavor. The fundraising campaign that followed would take some time to get going, but by the end of 1859, the £2,000 goal would be met. The fundraising would be aided by the exploration success of Victoria's rival, South Australia. I mean, no one wanted to be bested by South Australia. That would be embarrassing. The truth is, South Australia had been aggressive about exploring the continent's interior, and they had a successful explorer in their pocket, a Scotsman named John McDougall Stewart, who was usually called McDougall Stewart. McDougall Stewart is an important man to our story, although in an indirect manner. McDougall Stewart was born in Scotland in 1815, and he had come to Australia in 1839. He was not a big man, and he suffered from a variety of health issues. He was also a social misfit, ill at ease in the company of others. Despite all of this, or maybe because of it, he would become one of Australia's greatest explorers and a future subject for this podcast. Working in a variety of capacities, McDougall Stewart became an accomplished bushman, more at home in the outback than in any city. He was resourceful and intelligent and learned how to adapt to his environment. He eschewed traditional exploration tactics, which usually called for a large group of men to set out into the wild with wagons loaded down with supplies. Instead, he opted for smaller parties that could move fast, live off the land, and not be bogged down in the treacherous dunes and sandy soils of the Australian outback. In 1858, he set off on what would be the first of six major expeditions into central Australia. His goal was to pull the veil off the Australian interior. At the same time, the South Australian government offered a £2,000 prize to the man who would blaze a suitable route from the colony's capital, Adelaide, to the north coast. Such a route would give South Australia the upper hand when it came time to secure the continent's overland telegraph line. McDougall Stewart's success in exploring the interior, and the South Australian government's prize offer, helped spur the people of Victoria into action. This was a matter of pride. Heaven forbid that Victoria was bested by the uncouth hicks from South Australia. The Royal Society of Victoria would therefore set out to organize and equip an expedition into the interior of the continent. It would be called the Victorian Exploring Expedition, the VEE. Led by its president, George Staywell, who was also the Chief Justice of Victoria, the Exploration Committee would, in August of 1858, conduct what they felt was a masterstroke 
when they secured the services of George Landells, a local horse trader who had come to the committee with a fascinating idea. Landells proposed to go to India and purchase two dozen camels. The camels would be brought back to Australia and provide Victoria with the backbone of an expedition to explore the interior. The committee loved this idea. Camels were legendary for their ability to carry hundreds of pounds of gear into the desert and survive for weeks without water. They would be able to go into the arid interior of the continent, where men and horses would usually be forced to turn back. On August 31st, Lindells would be signed on, and by October, he was off to India. Take that, South Australia. We've got camels coming. And that would be the first big step in mounting Victoria's exploration endeavor. It was a process that would go in fits and starts, and was at times somewhat comical in nature. The big thing the committee needed to do, along with raise funds, was to select a leader for the expedition. The best person would have been McDougal Stewart, but he was a South Australian, and his interests were there. The next obvious choice was the aforementioned Augustus Gregory. Gregory, as we noted, was a successful explorer, having recently returned from an expedition that had gone from Brisbane to Adelaide, a trek of more than 1,500 miles. But Gregory, who was not from Victoria, was exhausted from his recent journey, which had taken 16 months and he had a nice job lined up as the new Surveyor General of the Queensland Colony, which was in the northeast section of Australia. So, while he declined the offer, Gregory did offer advice to the committee. He suggested setting up a base at Cooper's Creek, which was about halfway across the continent. From there, you could strike out into the unknown from a position of strength. With Gregory unavailable, another name bandied about for the command of Victoria's new expedition was Peter Edgerton Warburton. Warburton, usually called Major Warburton, was an ex-army officer and currently the police commissioner of South Australia. Warburton had experience as an explorer, but he was seen as a bit too vocal and opinionated, the kind of man who might not show proper deference to the society and its members. One writer said he wasn't, quote, gentlemanly enough, end quote. Major Warburton had a couple of other negatives, the first being that he was vocal about his desire not to use camels. And since the society had just set out to buy a bunch of them, well, that might be an issue. The other negative was that Warburton was a South Australian. Egad, another crow-eater. Wasn't there someone else, a good Victorian man for the job? Sadly, no. The truth is the society was limited with their options by insisting on finding someone of a certain social status. There just weren't that many proper gentlemen who also had experience as an explorer and or working and living in the bush of Australia. So, despite all their efforts, the committee couldn't find someone who fit all their needs. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't find a local man who at least fit the mold of a leader. A strong, forceful commander, many argued, was more important than someone who had experience in the outback. And that leads us to John Bruce, who was a member of the society and one of the wealthiest men in Australia. Bruce was interested in the work of the committee, and when no obvious candidate to lead the upcoming expedition was forthcoming, he advanced a new name into the pool of candidates. This was Robert O'Hara Burke. Robert Burke was the police superintendent in Castlemaine, which was about 60 miles northwest of Melbourne. He was also a personal friend of Bruce. He was considered a gentleman, and as a former army officer, it was assumed he was accustomed to discipline and leadership. So, let us take a deeper dive into the star of our series, Robert O'Hara Burke. Robert Burke was born in Ireland in 1821 to a respected family. His father was an officer in the British Army. At the age of 20, Burke would secure a commission with the Austrian army. He would cut quite the figure on the continent, a young, roguish, handsome man with a great black beard. He was funny and smart, and spoke fluent French, Italian, and German. He enjoyed hunting and chasing women. 
Burke was first-rate company, knowledgeable and articulate and witty. Everyone who met Burke, men and women, loved him. He was a proper gentleman. However, Burke would have a vice that would haunt him, gambling. In 1848, he would resign from his position in the Austrian army under a mountain of gambling debts. After that, he would return to Ireland and become a policeman. Then in 1853, Burke, bored by his life as a cop, decided to head to Australia, one of hundreds of thousands of men and women, each looking to make a new life and a fortune in the gold fields. Well, as many immigrants found out, mining for gold was a hard job. The easy gold, the stuff that was just lying on the ground, was gone. Now you had to dig for it or pan for it. Thus, many of the new arrivals were content to take other jobs. This is what happened to Burke, who found that his experience as a policeman was in demand in Victoria, where the influx of people had made crime a major issue. He would join the Victoria Police Force not long after arriving. Burke would remain in the police force, except for a short stint in 1856. His brother, James, would be killed in the Crimean War, and Burke decided to enlist in the British Army to go fight the Russians. However, by the time Burke arrived in England in June of 1856, the war was over and his services were not needed. He hopped right back onto his ship and returned to Victoria. By 1858, he was the police superintendent of Castlemaine. And despite his reputation for being unorganized, he was generally considered good at what he did. He demanded discipline from his men and brought a genuine energy and passion to the job and he stayed engaged with the local community. Now, in addition to his reputation for being unorganized, Burke was also seen as a bit eccentric and impulsive. Today, we might call him quirky. Also, as with other times in the past, Burke was getting bored with his life as a country policeman. He yearned to do something bigger. It was at this time that Burke would become friends with John Bruce, who, as we noted earlier, was one of the wealthiest men in Australia. It was Bruce who suggested to Burke that he put his name forward to lead the Victoria Exploring Expedition. Burke had not considered such a thing, but at Bruce's urging, he took a look at the idea. Bruce would introduce the handsome Irish police superintendent into the high society of Melbourne, and Burke would become acquainted with many important people, including Sir William Staywell and others on the Exploration Committee. So, here was Robert Burke, a man with no experience as an explorer. He had never been far from the settled areas of Victoria, and thus no experience in the bush country. He did not understand astronomy and did not know how to calculate latitude and longitude. One former colleague said of him, quote, he could not tell the north from the south in broad daylight, end quote. But as I said, people loved the guy. Men and women gravitated to him, despite never really doing much. And let's not forget, he looked the part of a leader. 39 years old, athletic and handsome, with an impressive black beard, he was the kind of man a writer would put into an adventure novel. One paper wrote this about Burke, quote, Mr. Burke is a gentleman in the prime of life, a perfect centaur as to horsemanship, they say, and accustomed to command, end quote. This quote brings up something very important, that Burke was a gentleman. While most of Australia consisted of hardworking immigrants, even convicts, the upper crust of traditional British society still ruled things, and they wanted nothing more than one of their own to lead Victoria's expedition. Experience be damned. In addition to Bruce, Burke's supporters included the society secretary, John McAdam, and Sir George Staywell. In addition, Burke's fluent German helped him garner the backing of Georg von Neumeyer, a respected German scientist and one of the few members on the committee with exploration experience. Now, despite all of these people in his corner, Burke still couldn't convince everyone. Because, let's be frank, he had no experience as an explorer, and he was no scientist. Thus, he had a difficult time gaining support from the majority of the committee. 
So throughout 1859, the Exploration Committee fumbled its way around, trying to raise money and trying to determine exactly what to do next. I'm not going to go through all the various ideas and plots and schemes that went down or were considered, but just know that no one really gained a foothold as the prime candidate for the expedition's lead. However, Major Warburton was the man that many considered the favorite. Some on the Exploration Committee even told him the job was likely going to be his. So if you are on the Exploration Committee and you do not like Major Warburton and you want to get him to drop out as a candidate for the VEE, what do you do? Well, that is pretty easy. You put an ad in the paper. Yes, on January 10, 1860, the Exploration Committee, led by Secretary McAdam, would put an ad in the paper seeking applications for the job of head explorer. Men like McAdam, Bruce, and Staywell said to Major Warburton, Oh gosh, we love you, but we need you to fill out a job application form, just like everyone else. Don't forget to include your three references. Well, the ad had the result that McAdam and Bruce wanted. It made Warburton mad. He felt that replying to a common newspaper ad was beneath him and an insult, and he refused to apply. He called the whole process repugnant. As far as he was concerned, his credentials were impeccable, and to ask him to apply with a host of other nut jobs and dreamers was beneath his dignity. No thank you. Now, the ad did mean that the committee would get people offering themselves up for the job, and most of them, there were 15 in total, were nut jobs and dreamers unqualified for the gig. However, there was one interesting candidate, Gustav von Temsky, a Prussian adventurer and soldier, who boasted he had, quote, fought Indians, blacks, white, and redskins, end quote, in his 13 years in America. Von Temsky's experience in the Prussian army, and then on the American frontier, and in the Australian goldfields, made him a viable option. But he was Prussian, so that was a huge hurdle to overcome. Now, the whole ad in the paper strategy had meant that the society was taken to task by the local papers. It just made them look foolish, and many speculated that some on the Exploration Committee were simply trying to set things up so they could get their favorite candidate the job, which was pretty much true. At the same time as the ad appeared in the paper, another significant thing happened in our timeline of events, and that was that the Victorian legislature would vote to provide £6,000 for an expedition. With the £3,000 raised by the public, that would make £9,000, which is pretty impressive. It would make any expedition the most expensive in Australian history, so long as they actually got the thing going. In the early months of 1860, the committee continued to waver, trying to figure out what to do next. Many of the scientific minds were appalled at the lack of skills the applicants possessed, including Burke. They even tried to institute a basic science test for the candidates, knowing men like Burke would fail, but the idea would be quashed. And then, two things would occur that would eventually force the committee to take action. The first was in March of 1860, when John McDowell Stewart started into the Australian interior, taking with him just two men. He would travel light and fast, they didn't even bring tents. His goal was to cross the Australian continent and then return. This got a lot of people worked up, wondering when the VEE would finally get moving. The second thing that happened was the arrival of the committee's prized camels. George Landell's and 25 camels reached Melbourne on June 16th. Everyone was thrilled by the arrival of the great animals, even though the cost to purchase and transport them was twice what the committee had budgeted. Landell's took the camels to the beach, where the locals were thrilled to see them trotting up and down the sands. Camels were then paraded through Melbourne, exciting the city's populace. So the camels were here, and McDowell Stewart was months ahead of the VEE. There were no more excuses. It was time to pick a leader. The final three candidates would be Major Warburton, who had never officially applied for the job, the Prussian soldier Gustav von Temsky, and the Irish police superintendent Robert Burke. 
Burke got 10 votes, Von Temsky 5, Warburton none. Robert O'Hara Burke, the man with no experience as an explorer, the man whose friends joked could get lost walking home from the pub, was now the leader of the biggest, most expensive exploration endeavor in Australian history. Burke would receive £500 a year for his services. By the way, the selection of Burke set off another round of scathing commentary from the newspapers. They fully understood the man was not qualified for the position. And besides, the papers expected South Australia's man, McDougall Stewart, to complete the crossing of the continent any day and render Victoria's expedition an afterthought. Now, before we move on, I do want to mention what happened to Burke's competitors for the lead explorer position, since both led interesting lives. Peter Edgerton Warburton would go on to be part of several expeditions, including a pretty epic one in 1872. For that one, he would lead seven men and 17 camels, ironic considering that he didn't like camels, from Adelaide to the northwest corner of Australia, cutting through the continent's massive interior and across the Great Sandy Desert. We're talking 1,500 miles or so. Pretty impressive. Warburton would lose an eye on that expedition, and he and his entire party would almost die from scurvy. But they all survived. It sounds like a future episode for the show. As for Gustav von Temsky, well, he had quite the adventurous life. He would go to New Zealand in 1862 with his family and join the Forest Rangers, an irregular force used to battle the natives of the island. He would fight on and off in New Zealand for five years until he was killed in combat in 1868, shot through the forehead. Two of von Temsky's children would move to Hawaii, and his granddaughter, Armine von Temsky, would go on to become one of Hawaii's best-known writers. So, the selection process was complete. The Society had gotten the Victoria Exploring Expedition its leader, Robert O'Hara Burke. And that is where we will leave the expedition for today. Next time, we will begin by introducing you to the men who will accompany Burke into the Australian outback, including a young Englishman named William Wills. Now, I will leave you with a few observations about the Victoria Exploring Expedition, and when I say observations, I mean red flags. Obviously, it's easy for us to look back at things after the fact, but even at a glance, there were some serious issues at play. The first was the Exploration Committee of the Society. Even today, it is not uncommon to look at work done by a committee and roll your eyes. And you can pretty much do that for this situation. The committee was slow and indecisive. It was plagued by conflicting factions and goals and voices and opinions, and it lacked expertise. It all allowed for the selection of Robert Burke as the commander of the expedition, which should never have happened. And that gets us to the second issue, Robert Burke. The man had some positives, including energy and charisma and determination, but he lacked training and experience, as well as the skill set and the temperament needed for the position. I brought up the Lewis and Clark expedition at the beginning of this episode, and the contrast between the two endeavors are quite stark. The Lewis and Clark expedition was an enterprise that took years to come to fruition. It was planned and organized by a handful of men, all with a common vision. Thomas Jefferson practically trained Meriwether Lewis for the job. The selection of Burke was pretty much the opposite process for this expedition, and it will show. Now, I don't want to sound all doomy and gloomy. Let's remember, this is just the pre-departure phase of the expedition. The Exploration Committee and Burke can cover up a lot of their weaknesses by hiring good people and planning well. Next time, we will see how that goes. I do want to mention one final thing before I leave you. And that is the Burke and Wills expedition has a lot of documentation available, most of it online. There is a website, the Burke and Wills Digital Research Archive, that hosts a ton of original materials. This includes lists of items bought by the expedition, the explorer's original journals and letters, documents produced by the Society and Exploration Committee, and a bunch of other stuff. 
It is really cool. So if that interests you, it is found at birkinwills.net.au. Or just go to explorerspodcast.com, and I will put a link on our website. And with that, the Birkin Wills Expedition, officially the Victoria Exploring Expedition, is ready for the next steps, to hire the men of the expedition, outfit the entire enterprise, and then set off on their goal to be the first men to cross the Australian continent. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution Podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of Ancient Egypt. Thank you.